He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Let's pray that the Lord would speak to us from this passage. Would you join me in praying? Father God, thank you for the scriptures. And our prayer to you this morning is that you would open our eyes and our hearts to you afresh. Show us how much you love us and lead us closer to you. Help me as I speak to speak of you faithfully, Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning we're continuing our sermon series looking at Jesus on the road to crucifixion. I wonder if any of you like me have ever watched a program on the BBC called fake or fortune. If you have, then you'll know that it's a combination of Fiona Bruce and the art historian Philip Mould putting their heads together to investigate normally a, a canvas, which you're shown at the beginning of the program, and they have to work out whether this piece of art is a fake or it's genuine. Will it turn out to be priceless or worthless? And um, the first few times you watch it, it's all very gripping. 
actually, after a bit, no disrespect to them, but it gets a little bit formulaic. And you know that sooner rather than later, they're going to end up in a, a lab where some technician will shine either an X-ray or an infrared kind of tool, and you'll see underneath the canvas, and more will be revealed than meets the eye. It's just like that with the passage that we've just had read to us just now. It's slightly unfortunate at the beginning of a reading because it picked up in the middle of a story. But if you were here last week, and even if you weren't, I can remind you that Jesus is now well on the way to the cross. Last week, we looked at how he washed the disciples' feet. And this week, we picked up the dialogue. Now, to us, this is all so well known, at least to most of us, not least because Jesus asks his followers to commemorate the very things we're reading about. We, we know it as the Last Supper. But there is so much more going on than appears to meet the eye. And I want to do something quite unusual in a way this morning, that the first part of my sermon, the majority of it actually, isn't really trying to teach us anything. It's far more inviting us to experience something, to actually become participators in the story we just read. One way of reading the scriptures, and it's been used down the generations, one way of getting under the skin of scripture, and one way of getting scripture under our skin, is to imagine yourself actually at an event that you've been reading about. So in a way, I'm inviting us to do a bit of time travel back to the very first time this supper actually happened. And to picture yourself there as a fly on the wall, if you like. Or maybe to make it easier for us, you could picture that this supper is taking place in your house. Well, if it was taking place in your house, I think the next day you would turn to a friend and you might ring them up and you might talk to them or WhatsApp them and say, wow, I just had a disaster of a dinner party. It couldn't have gone worse. It's the kind of nightmare that you never want to happen in your house. What do I mean by that? Well, clearly there's an atmosphere. The people sitting around the table have awkward silences. They're not communicating well. The host of the dinner party, Jesus, is out of sorts. How do I know that? Well, the scripture tells us he was deeply troubled in his spirit. If you've ever been invited to supper with someone who's out of sorts, you know, it doesn't bode well for the rest of the evening. The conversation is all at sea, and it gets so bad that one of the guests leaves the supper party early. It, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Why? Fundamentally, what's happening? Why? And the answer is because this is an evening of cross-purposes in every way possible. Now, we have a problem as readers reading this story today. It's that we know what lies ahead. We can't help but jump the gun. John is incredibly skillful, you might almost say crafty, in the way that he leads the story and the readers through the story, in that 
He effectively pulls off two timescales at once. He tells us, the reader, at the beginning of the chapter, that Jesus understands and knows precisely what's going on. Jesus knows that his hour has come. But one of the reasons that this dinner party is such a catastrophe is the disciples are on a different page altogether. They have no idea what's going on. And I think probably the hardest thing for me to get my mind around as I prepared this talk is to the disciples, this was not the Last Supper. To the disciples, this was just the next supper. This was one time with Jesus of an evening eating like so many other times before. They're just not on the same page or wavelength. And it becomes embarrassing. Jesus has been dropping hints and clues left, right and center. He's told them so recently, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk in the light while you have it. But that goes right over the disciples' heads. And as I said, Jesus tells us at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus knew, or John tells us, Jesus knew his hour had come. The disciples didn't know that. In fact, right the way through this whole story, the disciples show and give voice to their ignorance so that John writing says that Jesus quizzed the disciples in the middle of a foot washing and said, do you understand what I've done? And they look absolutely blank. Nope, not got a clue. And time and again, they don't, they don't know, you see, that they have a traitor sitting in their midst. This is another big problem for me. Every time I see the name Judas Iscariot, I immediately think, the baddie. You know, I, I know there's such evil attached to his name. I'm, I'm expecting catastrophe. But the way John tells it, I'm so surprised to see Jesus gives two seats of honor. One goes to the beloved disciple, who is John. And guess who the other one goes to? Judas. So as the supper kicks off, the two most privileged disciples are Judas and John. And the rest of them have no idea that Judas is about to turn traitor. In fact, when Jesus tells them that, John writes, the disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which he meant. And again, John tells us, and I'm quoting here, no one at the meal understood. And it's so strange that during a supper, which I think, short of the trial and the crucifixion, is about the most tragic and bleak moments of the gospel, at this very strange moment where Satan enters Judas, even while the drama is being played out, Jesus is in command. He knew. He knew his time had come and he prophesies his own betrayal. Verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, so when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. And betrayal is one of the themes of that reading we had. And it's put so concisely but sharply by the quotation of Psalm 41, he who shared my bread has turned against me, my familiar friend. 
And in ancient hospitality, in the hospitality of Jesus' times, hospitality was really important and it was a token of friendship. And to have your most cherished friend betray you, well, of course, that's about as painful as it could get. And when you look closely at what John says, it, it turns out to be a, a very vivid picture that he paints. Because Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then John tells us, interestingly, that Peter, who must have been some distance from Jesus in the layout of the room, signals to John, who's right next to Jesus, ask him who it is. It's like kind of, you know, who is it? Find out. And we know that a little conversation takes place that only the person on the left and the right of Jesus hear. So John hears it, and he records it for us in the gospel, and Judas hears it. And what Jesus says very quietly is, the one that I give this morsel to, he's the one who's going to betray me. The others don't hear. Had they heard, you, you can be sure they would have lynched Judas before he'd moved to muscle. And it's so ironic because this gesture of giving a precious piece of food to a friend was a signal of honor and deep trust. So many commentators say that what Jesus is doing is like, offering a very last invitation to Judas, saying, come on, be my friend, follow me. But Judas takes it, and at that moment, John says, Satan entered him, and he becomes intent on betraying Jesus. And so, Jesus says, rather louder, what you're going to do, do quickly. And John tells us that the rest of the disciples completely misunderstood. They thought he, he must either be about to go out and buy provisions for the Passover feast or go out and distribute money to the poor. But two people in that room, Judas and Jesus, understood that was not the mission. He was about to betray Jesus. What you're about to do, do quickly. And it was night, which is John's way of saying it was as black as it gets. Luke says, this is your hour where darkness reigns. You know, in scripture, quite often when things seem to go wrong, human beings turn on God and they say to him, does God know, does God care? Here, where things go wrong, we are told God knows. Jesus knew. And one of the things to take away from this picture and this passage is, However dark the situation, the Lord knows and the Lord reigns. But nothing is quite how it looks on the surface. This looks like impending disaster, doesn't it? But Jesus calls it as a moment of imminent victory. Now, he says, when Judas has left for Rome, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. But it's not what you would have expected. And in fact, I'd almost want to say Jesus is leading us astray here by implication because he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now, this phrase, Son of Man, 
would have rung a huge chord with the disciples because the Jews were waiting the coming of a salvation figure, a superhero. And if you look at Daniel, the book of Daniel, which they would have known for certain, one of the most highly charged chapters in the Old Testament that revealed to them what the Messiah would be like is Daniel chapter 7. And in there, an amazing figure called the Son of Man appears. And he is like a superhero. He is mighty. And he, he is clearly going to bring in God's revolution. He is a messianic figure of great power. Now, we understand that kind of power. It's like, if you put it into the terms of nature, we understand why the lion is the king of the jungle, because the lion looks the part. He's fierce, he's mighty in battle. If he roars, he's terrifying. If I said to you, the mouse is the king of the jungle, you'd say, well, no, I doubt it. Just, just doesn't look right. So we would understand why the disciples and why we actually default to the idea that the Messiah should be mega strong. This side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we do get it. But imagine how shocking it is to the disciples as they understand, come to understand, little by little, what Jesus has been trying to tell them for ages, that this road ahead is going to lead to him being arrested. It's going to mean that he's going to be humiliated and tortured. It's going to lead to him being scourged and stripped naked and paraded through the streets and put to death in the most barbaric way known to the Romans, deliberately designed to shame you and pain you. And yet, and yet, this is when Jesus says, this is my hour of glory. Now, there's so much more we could say about that, but I'm going to shelve that until we get towards Good Friday. But let's just notice what else Jesus says here. He turns to the disciples and he says these very famous words. A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And I am sure that actually we are meant to remember this as we walk away from the canvas, as it were. And it's very encouraging and very demanding at the same time. It's hugely encouraging to think, well, what is Jesus' love like for the disciples? How would you describe it? What are the standout points of his love, do you think? Well, I, I think pretty obviously it's unwavering, it's reliable, it's unconquerable. And you probably know that in Greek, they have four different words for the word love that we have in English. We, we just have that word love. They had four different words. And this word, when Jesus says how he's loved the people, is a word that had to be invented to describe Jesus' love and Christian love. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And it's the word agape, and the best definition I know of it is learning to love people you don't even like. It's a love that comes out of commitment as much as anything else. When I think of Jesus' love for the disciples, 
I think I would say these rather obvious points. He loved them with his eyes open. He really did know them. He, he knew all about them. He knew their shortcomings probably better than they knew their own shortcomings. And they didn't put Jesus off. You could be real in Jesus' company because he loved the real you. He has steadfast love, unbreakable love for those disciples. Secondly, I think forgiveness was in his heart of love. Every one of these disciples will desert Jesus and run away. They've let him down already so many times and they'll do it again. But he finds it in himself to welcome them back so long as they turn back to him. And then I notice he loves with humility. There's no hint of pride in Jesus' love or even condescension. You know, a few years ago, an article appeared in a newspaper with a picture, and it was a picture of the King of Sweden on a state trip. And there was absolute consternation in the press. Why? Because he carried his own briefcase. And they thought, you know, he should have a few flunkies to do that. Well, the king of kings and lord of lords, he carried his own baggage, not that he had much in the way of worldly possessions. And he would associate with anyone and everybody. His love has no hint of pride in it. And we can't really mistake from readings like this that sacrifice and self-giving was at the heart of the way he did relationships. So I need to say at the end of this, because that all sounds pretty demanding, he also loved them with joy. He did this with all his heart and it gave him pleasure and he'd do it all over again. Now, it's not lost on you, is it, that Jesus says we're to love one another in exactly the same way as he did. So that's why in the same way as rewarding and comforting to hear about the way Jesus loves me, it's also rather put stress on me because <laughs> it says, okay, and how are you going to show this and live it with each other? I've got some very simple ideas. I think with one another, we've got to give time to each other. You can't really say that you love one another like Jesus loved people if you're not prepared to spend time with other people. And not just time, but focus and attention. Because, you know, I, I've spent time in the past with someone who's given me their time, but when they look at their watch every 15 seconds, I know that actually they'd rather be somewhere else. So that doesn't really seem like love in action. <laughs> time, attention, meeting regularly. Very difficult to communicate love if you don't meet people on a regular basis. If it's going to be this Jesus kind of love, then it's going to be loving people that you might not even like. It's going to mean meeting with people that you don't feel you have that much in common with. It's going to need stickability, and we're going to have to give ourselves to do it. But that's what Jesus asked the disciples to do. You know how organizations spend a lot of money trying to get a strap line for their organization so they can promote it and sell it. Friends, Jesus has given us a strap line. It's just whether we dare put it up over our church or we find it too demanding. He'd like us to have over our church, see how they love one another. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Is that the takeaway of people that come in? 
He's had our takeaway when we've been coming regularly. See how they love one another. That's what Jesus asks. And actually, yes, it is the takeaway. Yes, it is. It, it's exactly our story. I can say with tremendous honesty and openness that I would not be standing before you as a functioning Christian today if other people hadn't loved me in this way. Nor would you be functioning as a Christian if someone else hadn't loved you in this way. Because just a cerebral knowledge of who Jesus is will never do the trick. We, we all will have chapters in our life which are testing and difficult and challenging for whatsoever reason. They come along. It's part of a parcel of life. And that is the time when you might get to experience and be grateful for this kind of Jesus-centered sacrificial love. And he plants this idea into the minds of the disciples even over the Last Supper. He's saying to them, when I've gone, you remember I washed your feet as an example of service. And now I'm telling you, even though I'm being betrayed and the way ahead looks like a dead end, it's not going to be a dead end, but it looks like it, you're to love each other as I've loved you. One final point as I come to a close, because I just can't leave it behind, is the little conversation that Jesus has with Peter. You remember it? That Peter says, there's no way that I'm going to let this happen to you. I'll lay down my life for you, says Peter in verse 38. And Jesus says, no, you won't. Before the day's out, you'll have disowned me three times. And I just think we need to notice that Peter learns what I would call the Peter principle here. Don't big yourself up. Small yourself down. And so I love it that Peter, in his old age, reflects back and writes to his friends, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, so in due time he'll exalt you. It's true. Many people comment on this passage that betrayal lies at the heart of Judas's relationship and Peter's to some extent. But there is a huge difference. Judas's betrayal was calculated done in the cold light of day, done in cold blood. Peter lets Jesus down, as we will all let Jesus down, in the heat of the moment, when the stress is on, and he regretted it instantly, and Jesus welcomed him back. Jesus loves them both, and he loves us all as he heads towards Calvary. Let's pray.